You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello, and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. My name is Alexandra Guerra, and I'm here in Seattle with lovely co-host Ross Kenyon. Keep getting those lovely stacking up. Feeling extra confident now. I take it back. Today, you were not so lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. I might have to edit that so it doesn't interfere with my public perception as lovely. Yeah, it's great. We're just joshing around as always. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have an old friend of mine who coincidentally moved to Seattle a bit before I did, We've been hanging out and, and talking. We have with us here today, Jeffrey Howard, editor and founder of Radicus, which is an online publication that takes a pragmatic approach to ideas and focuses on human flourishing. We're very happy to have you here with us, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure. Welcome. We should also say at the start that for the first time, I think we're going to call a season break. And break. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to take a little break after this episode. I don't know exactly how long it'll be, but we have some episodes that we're planning. We've been doing this basically nonstop for close to two years now. And I think it's time to, to regroup a bit, strategize. Absolutely. So we hope that you are enjoying your holidays, some time with family, resting, recovering, getting some moments of human flourishing in a community. Nice. Um, I know that I will be taking a break. I will be off the grid for like three weeks. You have well earned it. Going to uh, try to learn how to meditate. That'll be fun. Mm. It's a it's a good thing to do. I'm sure that will come up in the show here too. Um, well, we decided to do this show because, oh, well, where do I even start with this one? Um, Wendell Berry has come up so many times that it's become a running joke. In fact, we had a fan create a bingo card for Nori and Wendell Berry himself is one of the bingo squares. I noticed that. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so when we were talking about doing the show with Jeffrey, he's like, you guys talk about Wendell Berry a lot. And I was like, yeah. And Jeffrey, um, and correct me if I'm wrong. So you had just read this book by Dr. Patrick Deneen called Why Liberalism Failed. And this is a book very much in the same school of thought as Wendell Berry. Dr. Deneen is a communitarian. I think he calls himself a Catholic communitarian. He might. He definitely is a Catholic who speaks in communitarian circles. So I think that's yeah. accurate. I pulled that from Wikipedia, which, as you know, is 100% accurate at all times. Uh, <laughs> but I, I can see that. I can see that fitting. And we wanted to do an episode that focused on the political philosophy of communitarianism because it is strange. It doesn't break neatly along the political lines that you might expect. Sometimes you'll be reading Wendell Berry and be like, wow, this is this is to the left of Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. And sometimes you're like, this is extremely conservative. And I have a hard time mapping this given my political experience as an American in 2019. Which, for no other reason, I think it makes it interesting to read because it isn't exactly what you would expect all the time. Like, I know when I read a conservative or a libertarian or a progressive or a Marxist, I know what I'm getting. Communitarians still have that, like, a little bit of like a surprise in there for me, like a little, little spice. So, um, we decided to have Jeffrey on to talk about what exactly communitarianism is, why should we care? Should we we care? care? (laughs) Uh, What does it have to say? Because, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Why don't you just, why don't you just start off in the broadest terms possible here? What, what is a communitarian? Yeah. So let me offer, I want everyone to envision a square, rather a diamond. So if we're comfortable with the left, right paradigm, politically speaking, the Northern point, you could see communitarianism, which serves as a contrast sometimes with individualism or even in some ways with libertarianism. And so On the left, you usually have a big focus on equality, and there tends to be a greater comfort with government or state intervention in the market, discomfort with state intervention in, quote-unquote, the bedroom or in people's private lives. The converse of that on the right, you know, more comfortably or traditionally, more uh, laissez-faire market approach, but being more comfortable with state intervention into people's private lives, whereas... South of the border, I guess you could say, is libertarianism or individualism, where it's really about really removing any means of intervening in people's private lives, that people are free to do whatever they want, essentially, as long as they're not harming other people. There's all sorts of squabbles within that cantankerous corner of the political spectrum. And then you have the communitarianism, which is really focused on ultimately solutions come from communities, that ultimate meaning comes from community, that Things need to be determined through communities and by community that's on the local level as contrasted with, say, 
maybe a national or a global community. It's really about the particulars versus the universal. And as we'll talk about the contrast between liberalism, which focuses on a more universal ethos or a more cosmopolitan view, communitarianism might contrast with that with a more focus on a local or a particular context. All right. So if I read this back to you, you have people that are broadly left of center now who are progressive. They're pretty comfortable with state action, uh, changing various things about the economy, um, whatever. And you have people that are right of center who tend to be suspicious of the state messing with the market and that sort of thing. But communitarians seemingly are suspicious both of like the federal government introducing a new suite of programs ostensibly to help people. They think that's maybe too big and too distant a solution, but they're also very suspicious of the market ordering society according to its dictates too. Is that? Yeah, I think that's that's pretty accurate. And you could, depending on which type of communitarians you're speaking with, they may also emphasize or being comfortable with state intervention, the sense of more local state interventions or economic solutions that are more, locally driven, but it's, you know, they're going to be critical of extreme laissez-faire approaches or extreme federal level mandates. So how do you know that you're a communitarian? It, it's fluid. It's individual. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm sure there are quizzes online. Honestly, communitarianism is probably so niche that there probably aren't any BuzzFeed quizzes on <laughs> whether you're a communitarian or not. Oh um, man. But I, you know, I think a few hallmarks you can look for is you know, when you're considering ethical or moral questions, mm. do you see it through the lens of, is this going to be good for my community or our community? Mm. There's a, a slogan within sort of communitarianism is, I don't become a me without a we or something along those lines, right? Like you cannot exist without being part of a whole. And you can't just think of what is only good for me or what I want to do. You're always thinking in the context of how does this impact other people and ultimately as human beings, we're relational creatures. Yeah, I was hoping I'd have a chance to bring this up. Uh, and maybe you'll like this, Alessandra. But there's a very famous Margaret Thatcher quote when she was prime minister of, of uh, Britain. And she said that uh, there's no such thing as society. And that this is just an idea. And I was like, that's true. The idea of society isn't something that I could point at. It's sort of in the idea realm. But then I remember people coming back and being like, the individual's an abstraction. <laughs> You're like, great. So now what do I do? <laughs> it's it's useful. It's easier to think in terms of individuals acting or it's sort of like, is this going to take us down a road that's too weird? Well, I, I have a road that okay, I want to comment on. Yeah. <laughs> I'll walk you back from the ledge. Uh, just to, to what you were just describing, Jeff, Jeffrey. Um, work. Oh, Jeff, Jeffrey. A lot of it resonated with me in terms of, okay, you're going to see something and you'll ask yourself, is this good for my community and less so about, like, is it good for me as an individual? I very, very much identified with that because I have a loss of identity without my whole, with my community. Now, here's a, here's a sticker. It's a little bit different from what you were describing with regards to locality. So to describe my situation, I've lived in all four corners of the U.S., so Miami, New York, L.A., and now Seattle, spent three months in Denver. There are people that I have in different places that are my community. I talk to them fairly regularly, very close to my family, and they're my community. And without the ability to talk to them, to see them, to just continue that connection, I would have a loss of identity. But they're not local. Mm -hmm. So can you be a communitarian without locality? That's a great point. I think you can be. There's definitely for communitarians and especially for Patrick Deneen in his book, Wendell Berry, there's a publication called Front Porch Republic, which they talk about place, limits, and community and markets in a very specific way. But like place does matter, but communitarians may talk about three different types of community. You have a community of place, which is what we've talked about as your geography based, right? Your neighborhood, where you're anchored to. You have communities of memory, which is a little bit more broad, sort of like we as a community of Americans, right? We have this memory of the American founding and certain mythologies that we have of what that identity in that community is. It's the most abstract of community that communitarians will talk about. Third is communities of psychology, where it's essentially the face-to-face interaction, the the way we get fed by one another emotionally and those more human elements that we often talk about, like those really meaningful 
moments of community, as I would say. We should definitely discuss that more, but maybe we should do it through the lens of the book here. Mm -hmm. So why liberalism failed? Why did it fail? <laughs> what were the alternatives? It, it, what even is liberalism? Because I don't even know that people can recognize it since we all swim in it. And even if you're if you're listening right now, you're Republican, you're a Democrat, you're both still liberals in the broadest sense of the term. You probably have more in common than you might think. What is liberalism? Yeah. So to your first point, Deneen would say liberalism failed because it succeeded, which is sort of a clever plan words. But what he's saying there is Baked into liberalism are a few tenets that ultimately are going to or have or are leading to its demise. And so liberalism, the way he defines it in the most broader terms, and again, it's not liberal, progressive versus conservative. It's a broad philosophical tradition that generally starts back with John Locke, who's considered an Englishman, who's considered the founding father of liberalism. You have proto-liberals like Hobbes and uh, his employer, Sir Francis Bacon. And the idea is that there is a state of nature, and this is arguably kind of a fiction, maybe a thought experiment. There's a state of nature that we were all, our most free state of being that we are non-relational. We are not beholden to sort of arbitrary things of birth, such as your heritage, the religion of your parents, the boundaries you're born into, all these things that liberals consider arbitrary and limiting. And then in the state of nature, as the most free being, you are free of all those things. And you have certain rights as an individual which the most liberal maxim is sort of you're free to do as you want as long as you're not harming others. That's John Stuart Mill's harm principle, and that's at the heart of liberalism as well. And so this idea is that we exist as these non-relational beings, and in order to maintain that, to avoid the sort of short, nasty, brutish life, we enter the social contract in which we form governments that are there to secure those basic individual rights. A lot of these are contained in, you know, the Declaration of Independence, which was very Lockean and ultimately a lot of the constitution for the United States and many other countries. And at the heart of it really is individualism. Deneen also talks about conquest of nature. So this will really intersect with what we want to talk about with the Reversing Climate Change podcast is this philosophy that nature is something to be conquered and it's something to be controlled. And we're reaping the fruits of that in the ecological devastations is the logical conclusion. So those are just a few things at the heart of it. Yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> I almost forgot we were on the Reversing Climate Change podcast. We're, we're going to get there, I promise <laughs> okay. you. I'm trying to keep us there, folks. <laughs> Thank you, Jeffrey. <laughs> I, I love the anthropology of this because it's clearly just a thought experiment. And if you don't have language, if you don't have touch, you just can't even develop your mind. You end up with an attachment disorder. You, are not, you, you will not do well in a group setting ever, basically, unless you combat that. In order to even make sense of the universe, you need language to help you develop concepts to, to partition this so it's not just undifferentiated mass. You only get that by being born into relations. You don't just develop that on your own, but sort of the contractarian view, which is useful because it's about consent, right? About how can mm -hmm. people choose to consent to political order, which is otherwise just banditry, basically like states just saying like, I rule you, you must consent. And they're like, no, there's got to be, there's got to be some consent in here, right? And so they're trying to like work their way into how could someone consent to divine monarchy? This is sort of like, mm -hmm. as I understand, Hobbes is trying to work towards this. Whereas like con social contract theory and contractarianism is very much like a world like the walking dead where you have the, the various bands of people encounter each other in a state of nature where there's no overarching mm -hmm. law. And it's like, do we trust each other? Do we agree to stuff or not? And then of course they all just kill each other. <laughs> and so the, the point is to like, go ahead. Walk. Or beat each other with bats. Or beat each other with bats. bats. With hey, spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> hey, that was ridiculous. That, that never happened. Yeah. So that's like, that's part of that, uh, that tradition, I guess. You literally but, just said a bunch of words, like you're like banditry, like, what was it? Contractism? Contractarianism. Contractarianism. <laughs> like, what are these words, Ross? It's, it's basically just, yeah, like social contract theory. So like, like people, how do they agree and can, how do you consent to a government ruling you? Because right now, like, you don't, you, yeah, you, you've never given your consent to be governed, but clearly like. In, in, like, does implicit consent work in this case or not? P people have been fighting That's over this question. for a very long time. I like David Hume's of the original contract where he's like, implicit consent is like carrying a sleeping man onto a boat and saying, if you don't like it, you can jump off. Mm -hmm. So not so good. And also explicit consent is impossible and we would never all agree to the same rules. So it's like, mm -hmm. 
So does consent matter as a political principle at all? Clearly, we want to preserve, we don't want the idea of like being governed without your consent, but then how do you make it work? So like social contractarian thinking is, is trying to square this circle to this day. I still don't know how it works. I see it on a spectrum and I also <laughs> don't see quite how it works. Consent's very important. Wait, does it work anywhere? That's like maybe maybe the seasteads, people who want to like- That's what I was going to say. <laughs> like, like if you could truly opt in, like that's explicit consent. But so like communitarians might come back and say, consent is not nearly as important as you think it is. Being born into these relations, uh, you didn't choose your family, but that's not arbitrary. That doesn't mean you can just throw them to the curb as garbage. You owe them some bonds, affection and, and love, or unless they're like horribly abusive. Like, unless you choose not to, unless you're like, okay, this is something where you have to make that choice very consciously and explicitly like, okay, I want to dump them. And now I burn this bridge and I will never walk back. Yeah, but that's yeah. these are some of the downsides, effects of liberalism that Deneen sees. That quoting the French aristocrat who came to visit America, Alexis de Tocqueville, in eighteen twenty nine and eighteen thirty, had a couple volumes, Democracy in America, in which he talks about at the heart of liberalism is this idea of freeing ourselves from the chains that bound the aristocrats all the way down to the peasants. But what has happened from Deneen's perspective is that. These other chains that bind us, family, the community, faith communities, cultural, ethnic communities, you name it, that we inherit our inheritances even down to, Deneen likes to talk about last names. He'll, he'll give presentations on his book and he'll talk about how Deneen means of Neen, where it's like an aristocratic name or like de Tocqueville, that's a name, Smith. My last name Cooper is Guerra, Weaver. which means war, and I have been wanting to change it for <laughs> And that, that's an inheritance whether you yeah. wished upon or not, right? Yeah. And he talks about how in trying to liberate the individual from these aristocratic oppressions, we've liberated the individual from all other demands that we could place upon one another, that we are so focused on trying to make the individual completely free that we are so non-relational that we are uncomfortable or not allowed to make demands upon one another. And communities are based on us being able to make demands on one another where it's like, hey, I'm sick and unwell. Someone in my community, I can make a demand of them to have in an unspoken demand perhaps, but like a demand of them to come and take care of me because that exists the other direction. And we don't really have these strong bonds for a lot of us. Tocqueville and Robert Nisbet, his book, The Quest for Community, came up in this book, which is like an old favorite of mine, because he, he's one of the conservative thinkers that I think is super interesting. And he has a great section in that book where he talks about how prior to the Industrial Revolution, literature tended to be about feeling overdefined. Everyone in my small town knows all of my business there. I have no room to be myself. I'm sure if you've ever been to like a small town community or like you're, you live with your family and you're just like, everyone is constantly gossiping and knows everything about me and I hate it. So it like, <laughs> literature tended to be, be about being overdefined. Hashtag holiday season. That, that, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> They're so going to be listening you, to this like on their walk away from the Christmas table. Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> Yeah. So you, you probably know listeners, especially if you have to live with that and that's just your life constantly. Mm -hmm. But then uh, Nisbet comes back and says, well, after the industrial revolution, uh, literature tended to be about alienation and about not feeling connected. And think like someone like Franz Kafka, you just, <laughs> you were just sort of like an anonymous person in the city and you don't have any connections. So basically we're just doomed to be unhappy <laughs> is the point of that whole spiel. Well, yeah, I think that's, that's the real worry here is as we've liberated ourselves so much, and I speak of this from a very liberal perspective, there's this concern as where's my place? Like we have these very thin communities. So we, I think we all, most of us have communities that we talk about, whether that's, you know, the people I go boulder and rock climbing with, the people who maybe share some certain political or philosophical views, maybe my family or faith community, whatever communities we have, some that are thin and some are thick. Mm -hmm. And by that is meaning really these stronger bonds that they're more difficult to exit. So one of the celebrations or achievements of liberalism is that it's made exiting, quote unquote, arbitrary relations or arbitrary inheritances that much easier. Well, go, yeah, go absolutely. So in this book, well, the book, again, it's called Why Liberalism Failed. And in the beginning, he starts talking about how to this point that our relationships are now super loose. And he makes some pretty sweeping statements. I'm not going to get into correct. that. I mean, there's, he does. Just like, he does. there's a lot of, like, of looseness. Yeah. A little, yeah. Anyways, hold yourself back, Alexandra. Okay. <laughs> and we're moving forward. So that there are looseness in relationships. And he very much implies like that this is the terrible thing. Like it has led to the demise of like social 
I don't know. I, don't, I wouldn't even know how to describe Social it. capital? Yeah. But what's so interesting is like I, I almost see almost like a pendulum. So if I take a ball and I like swing it this way, they're over here in an extreme, super constrained, right? They implicitly or just were bound to some social contract that they never said yes to. And then, okay, then there's liberalism. You let them go. And that ball swings the other direction. So now we're so free. We're like, oh my God, I'm so far off the middle because now I have thin communities. I have no one to take care of me when I'm sick or to bring me some soup or whatever it is. And so I think that the feeling that I got or the idea from listening to this book was, well, well, relax. Like it's just a normal thing where we can now come back to the middle that there might be this natural order swing where we find in the end we'll settle on a middle where it's like you will have community, but you have more freedom to define what that community looks like. And we just might be at this particular point in time at a stage because of technology, because of global economies where we're just so far on the right or, or left or whatever on the side that you're going to swing back naturally to the middle. I was doing this Will whole we? thing I, with my hands. <laughs> I hope so. I think, I wonder how much worse it'll get until it gets better. I think if you're, if you're listening, take a catalog, be like, do you go to church? Are you a member of any fraternal societies? Are you in a knitting club or a reading group or a bowling league? Are you in any of these? I had to send this to Jeffrey too, in prep for this, my favorite comedy ever peep show still the greatest there, there's a great scene oh, i think i don't think i sent it to you Allison. i'll no. send it to you though but they go on a double date and they go to this play and it's, it's like local community theater and they're like this is terrible <laughs> for less money we could be watching heat with robert de niro and al pacino at home it's <laughs> like yes like there's definitely like like the competition for my attention after work like i'm sure you get home it's like would i like to go and mm. uh pray or, or or go to a Bible study right now? Or mm. would I like to, I don't know, go and play badminton with people? No, I can watch literally any show in the history of the planet <laughs> yeah. with no effort at all. And I think it's just hard to compete. I think we're going to see a lot more fighting on the internet in your apartment by yourself before we see people joining this stuff again. I hope I'm wrong. Well, yeah. I like, Alexander, what you're saying is maybe it is a pendulum. I'm generally an optimist with a lot of things, but I do see a lot of this pessimism where we are both from market means as well as through government interventions, we're able to isolate and not have to invest as much in communities because we can fall back into something else. And I can think of a couple examples mm -hmm. in which in my own life, so I think to Ross and I met in DC during my second stint in DC. So it was actually during my first go at DC that after finishing a semester of teaching, I was, you know, I was in some sense, underemployed, underhoused. I was crashing wherever I can find mm. housing with people, as well as I didn't have enough money for food. And I grew up, inherited a very powerful, very thick faith community that I can still, although I'm non-practicing, more culturally a part of this community, I can go in many places across the country and I can tap into people with a shared, this sort of shared story, shared it's not, it's not like the people's temple or heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's one of those. Right? No. <laughs> and, um, but I'm in DC and I'm in this hard place and I'm no longer practicing the faith, but it's still part of my community and my family heritage. And I go to local clergy, talk about my situation and being as sort of a law of reciprocity, I've given so much to this community throughout most of my life that in speaking with the local clergy, they're able to provide a little bit of help with food for a couple months for me. And that's something that that is a thick community that is providing support and help to me that I've placed a demand on them because they've been able to place a demand on me. Whereas on contrast, if I'm not part of a really strong community, I'm not incentivized to have a strong community right now because, well, if I fall in hard times, I can rely on this state intervention or that state intervention, or maybe I can find some other cheaper market means to achieve something that doesn't require me having to extend myself emotionally or socially mm -hmm. with other people. But then that's the thin. Mm -hmm. That's even a thin way of living. Right. It's superficial. It does not speak to your core. It does not revive you. Yes. That's everything that you're saying. And what comes to mind in this conversation is it almost seems like the trigger is moving, is leaving, right? So assuming, of course, this is not the case for everybody, but assuming you are born somewhere, you're raised somewhere with a family, and then you move. Like, for example, I moved from Miami to New York when I was 18 for college. 
And then I had to start a whole new community there in college. Luckily, the the soil is fertile. <laughs> and they, and you, you're like forced to re- repeat interactions with people. So you're able to build a community then. But again, it's not as thick as my uh, family home in Miami. Then I go to grad school. And I'm like, oh, that's even harder because there's like no social, <laughs> there's no help from the university for like PhD students to hang out. It's just like, oh, it's the other PhD students that were in your lab, but they've been working together for three years. So then you have like an awkward one year of like working in the lab and trying to be friends with people. And then like just moving to me seems to be a pattern that triggered my loss of thickness and community or connection. And it takes a lot of intention and effort to rebuild that wherever you go. And you have to start from scratch every time you move. I still don't feel like I've done a very good job here in Seattle of figuring it out. Like a bit of a hermit, getting me out to do basically anything is still still an endeavor. I need a lot of talking into. Mm. And uh, it's bad. It, you know, like Think about how hard it is to make friends as an adult. Like you, you really, <laughs> and then not even to make them, but to preserve those relationships. Because you can, you can just like stop or you can just like, maybe turn down an invitation two or three times. Maybe that's the last one you get until you go yeah. and do it. Mm-hmm. So like you, you really got to try. I don't feel like I've been trying very hard and I don't know that it's been the best thing for me. Are you from here, Jeff? No. So I'm a little bit of my personal history. I've lived in California, Utah, okay, so you, DC, similar, England, similar to Ross too, right? Seattle. Yeah. I mean, Ross and I followed similar geographic changes <laughs> just in parallel unbeknownst. Yeah, so. just bouncing around really. <laughs> but yeah. We're like right. the, the rootless, fungible, disaffected, <laughs> liberal extreme. Yeah. Well, right. Like it's the, you don't know what you have until you lose it. And yeah. you know, as someone <laughs> yes. who used to have such strong community and also being a bit of a hermit myself, mm-hmm. I've, and how much I'm invested and interested in reviving community and the loss of it, you know, it's hard. You come home from a long day of work and you're just like, I just want to make dinner and crash. Oh, I've got to take my dog out for a walk. And we're inundated with content to consume on every other streaming device. And you're just like, don't want to be left easier. behind. It's yeah. easier. Moratorium yeah. on new content, guys. I, I, too <laughs> oh, much. Yeah. Oh, too yeah. much content. <laughs> I go through months where I'm like, no, no more. Like, oh, you this good show. Nope. Not going to do it. There's a new edgy serial drama that's only seven seasons long. Featuring <laughs> anti-heroes. <laughs> That are morally ambiguous. <laughs> I'm still finishing Game of Thrones. I'm finally Oh my god, I season. love Game of Thrones. I've seen every episode multiple times. You guys are part of the problem. Yeah, right there. I am part of the it. problem. <laughs> but you know what I've been doing recently? I mean, you mentioned Seattle. Seattle's a tough one. Mm. Like, Jesus, it's hard to make friends as an adult. Just live in Seattle. Like, uh, the Seattle freeze is a real thing. Mm-hmm. But at least I can find more and more people who also moved to Seattle and are struggling with the freeze. And so most of my friends are not local to Seattle. But it takes so much time. It's what? I moved here two years ago. So December 4th. Oh, wow. December 4th was the 5th of December in 2017. And I finally have friends where now I get, this is the level. This is the measure of success for communities when you're going from super thin. If y'all can't see, she's pinching I'm pinching my fingers. There's no space. Yeah, there's no space. Is... When do you transition from like, oh, we have to like, hey, do you want to go to brunch someday? Like, let's do a Sunday this time. Okay. And everything's scheduled, super thin. Then you go to thick, like that medium thickness where it's like, hey, I'm going home now. Do you want to come hang out? Yeah, sure. I'll be over. That is success. (laughs) That's a sweet spot. Yeah. (laughs) We should maybe, maybe... Uh, get it closer to the book again too because i think do we, we? Can, I, I, <laughs> I i think that's a good a good idea i think, All right, let's I think do if, it. Let's do if it. uh dr patrick denine heard this he'd be like what the heck guys like <laughs> you like mentioned my book and barely then just start talking about making friends in seattle this is the reversing climate change podcast oh, yeah, it's our last one of the year we haven't even gotten to that but we we sure will okay so maybe let's just let's do our due diligence here and, and catch it up so francis fukuyama into history. Mm. So he says, like, this is a famous thing. Like, after the Cold War, after the, the Berlin Wall came down, it was saying, like, liberalism is where we're all headed. So, like, broadly, we believe in trade and private property and and markets. And this is going to be the thing. It's not going to be fascism, which was another big alternative in the 20th century that has been thoroughly discredited. Less so now, but let's hope it stays discredited. Fingers crossed. Communism was uh, very discredited after the Soviet Union collapse, although it still has its admirers in, in certain circles. But liberalism was ascendant. We all sort of thought this is the best we can do. This is what we're going after. And then now we're all staring into it. And it seems like Deneen thinks that we've sort of hollowed it out 
Like we spent hundreds of years building these communities uh, that were actually quite robust. And then liberalism was so successful that it no longer required the communities that made liberalism possible just by having people grounded and contextualized mm-hmm. and a part of things. It removed the need for those. And now all you have people who do, their, their primary identity is national politics or like identifying with a political party and like yelling at people online. And there's nothing but that. So like liberalism was so successful that it might undermine itself because now people have nothing but this and it isn't very good. Yes. Does that do a good job? Yes. And I would add central to that, what he's talking about, this hollowing out are the more civic and social institutions that I think Robert Putnam highlights very well in his book, Bowling Alone, which Deneen talks about as well. It was first an article I think came out in the 80s, later became a book where he highlights, although the numbers of those who bowl back then into the past few decades and now are still the same, the number of those who bowl in bowling leagues have mostly disappeared. And that's uses as this imagery to show hmm. we're isolated, we're doing things not in associations. And so part of why that's a problem is because these associations create norms and cultural expectations that temper some of the extremes in our, our human nature. And they're also part of what makes liberalism succeed. But Deneen would say what's this individualism that's baked into liberalism has slowly replaced those out that market logic and large-scale state interventions have hollowed out those intermediary spaces. Okay. And that's true. That sounds maybe small town or I guess it can exist in large urban environments too. But especially if you read Wendell Berry, so much of it is about this, you know, bucolic life out in the countryside in these small towns. You go to Port William, if you read those, those novels, which are, which are lovely. If you just want pure distilled nostalgia, just read any of those Port William. It makes me nostalgic for something I've never experienced. It's uh, they're beautiful. I know you, you like them a lot too. I do. That I do. But we're just not going back. I think this century, we're going to see increasing urbanization. This is not even something that's that disputed as far as I know. Everyone is moving to the city and they're doing it globally. And we're not going to have these sort of like small, small towns, farming lifestyles anymore. Those they are increasingly uh, mechanized and something that you don't have to deal with unless you really, really want to, or you're just born into it. And you don't want to leave. And even still, it seems quite hard to stay there. So I read this book recently by Peter Enns called How the Bible Actually Works. And it was written about people oftentimes read the Bible as a rule book, but this is actually not a very good way to read the Bible. There are passages right back to back, even in Psalms, because it's you're supposed to read like holy books as a way of generating wisdom, not to like just get an answer and be like, oh, what does the Bible say about X? And you look it up. Oh, there it is. That's the end of it. <laughs> Except in, if you're in Leviticus. Except, <laughs> yeah. But even, even still, there's stuff in there too that he goes into. I thought it was a really, really compelling book. But so like a lot of the people who get really into Christianity and the Bible, they'll go back and say like, we're like reclaiming primitive Christianity and going back to basics and just looking at like, what exactly does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, I found my answer and done. But he makes a, a case in there that actually like, you can never go back. A lot of that was historically contextual. You're probably missing a lot of it. It's more about what can you take from that and move it forward? So given that Wendell Berry and Patrick Neen seemingly have this aesthetic that is very much small town living, rural America, that might be the ideal, but we're going farther and farther away from that. How do we learn from that knowing that we probably aren't actually going to go back to it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a major tension. I believe statistically, what's it like 2% of Americans are actually farmers nowadays. That may even be high. Maybe it's 1%. I think it might be, might be below that, yeah. And so, you know, and for the last century and a half more, we've been consolidating farms larger scale. That's where we get the big questions around big agriculture. And so most of us just don't want to be farmers. Those of us who didn't grow up with it, read Wendell Berry or someone else and go, oh, yeah, I think I want to just find my little parcel of land and just farm it and live this idyllic life. And farming is really hard work. So I don't think there's a way of going back. I like the idea of more and more people wanting to try and get back to earth, back to the soil, as Wendell Berry will talk about. Um, There's a a Berry, I think, institute in Kentucky where they actually have free scholarships where people can learn to be farmers who are really wanting to revive a little bit of this lifestyle. And I'm personally not as invested or optimistic of loads of people just suddenly getting into farming. But I think it's really getting back to that community ethos that isn't necessarily required everyone to be farmers, 
But we have this real crisis of the rural-urban divide, which I think is probably one of the biggest divides that we can consider, at least in the United States, North America, where there's such big differences in lifestyles, values, how rural-urban folks view each other or fail to talk to one another. And I think that's a really big crisis is trying to cross that divide. So we've talked about the thing that is happening. What are the consequences of it? Like the why it failed? What is failing? Like what are the consequences of all the loose relationships, the lack of connection between rural and urban people? Like what are the consequences? What's failing? Is it just the state of today or why are we even having this conversation? So I think a, a few of these things, and some of them are hard to pin solely on liberalism. And I'm not sure Deneen would say all these are can be put on liberalism. But when you talk about this alienation, we look at these rising numbers of people who deal with loneliness, especially the more elderly or more vulnerable populations who are just like, oh, you're not economically fruitful. You're not useful. You're sort of like discarded. But even those who are not, those of us who are quote unquote economically productive, we still live pretty solitary lives, a lot of us. And we deal with the depression and loneliness that comes from that, the lack of human flourishing that you know we're facing. So you've got um, Steven Pinker who contrasts this in his book, Enlightenment Now, where he's talking about, we live in this most prosperous time, most peaceful, least violent time in human history. And largely a lot of those statistics metrics are true, but immaterially speaking, there's a lot of unrest. There's a lot of distrust of one another. We don't trust our democratic institutions. We don't know how to speak to one another politically or even emotionally. A lot of us lack the emotional intelligence to be able to communicate our alienation and loneliness to one another. Some of us don't even know how to recognize it because we're so distracted by all of our content that we consume. We're so distracted by you name it. And so there are these, some could say they're, they're sort of spiritual deficiencies, psychological, emotional, you name it. And so those are coming out in ways of suicide, opiate crisis. You can connect it to a lot of these, which are hard to show a causation. You can probably show some correlation, but those I think are some of the things that he's trying to point toward is as we've been so radically focused on liberating individuals from everything we relate to and we inherit, this is what we're seeing. And maybe it is a pendulum that can swing back. Deneen thinks the nature of liberalism as an ideology, this is its success. It has been achieved. And we can't, trying to use liberal solutions to liberalism is trying to pour gasoline on a fire. And maybe he's right. I, I'm skeptical. I mean, I'm open to it, but I think maybe there are some quote unquote liberal solutions that we can use to like Nori, maybe? Like Nori, maybe? I, I don't know. I don't know if he would really... Well, I don't know. Maybe we should just talk about what does communitarianism have to say about climate change and the environment? I could see them thinking something that was more small scale. I think us trying to commoditize carbon removal, I feel like commoditize and communitarianism should, are just sort of anathema in the same sentence to start. They could be. I'm not as expert on communitarianism to know a lot of the conversations around ecological crisis, climate change, and those things. But I think your intuition is probably right. They're similar to on the criticisms further on the left of this commodification of nature and soil and earth and air is, is a problem. And that it's not just some material thing that can be controlled. There's people that are attached to it. And part of whether you want to call it a more of a Marxist critique or more of a communitarian ethos is that we lose something when we are so separated from where our food comes from. Yes. You know, Wendell Berry talks about how urban centers are colonizers of the farmlands, that the farmlands continue to be left behind. They continue to become poorer and they deal with all these issues we've talked about, but on a more severe scale as urban centers such as Seattle, D.C., many of these cities that I've lived in and been able to benefit from that, we are kind of these colonizers benefiting off of the earth. And we don't know where most of our food comes from. This is where we get into these ethical questions as to the people who are doing this farming. Are they under good working conditions? Are they contributing to more sustainable farming practices? We're mostly just looking at a price tag in a grocery store, most of us. And I think that's problematic down the road. It is in some ways, but in others too. How much extra time do you want to devote to researching every product that you buy? 
It's and especially well, like the, the economy is so interconnected. It's just sort of like everything produces everything else. But I don't, I don't know if it's about researching every product that you buy. Cause no, no, I don't do that. Um, absolutely not. But it's more, I think what I'm hearing from you, Jeff is being connected to it. So I don't know the tomatoes that I grew in my garden versus the tomatoes that I buy, man, I just love my salad so much better. It's like a whole experience. Like I'm sitting there, I'm mindful, I'm savoring it. Like there's just, it, but that is life. But we're so, everything is just so easy and prepared and we pick it off a shelf and we pay for it. And then we're numbing ourselves out and then we're watching Netflix and then we're doing this and then we're, oh, well, I'm busy. And then I got to go to this, this website and I got to do this thing for work. And then I'm going to just get back on the bus. And it's almost like, well, what's the point at all if we're not stopping for a second to think about the things and experience. Oh yeah. I just, I just spewed all that devil's advocate at, at Jeffrey here. And I'm like thoroughly alienated person. <laughs> <laughs> no. like no. defending this thing. And I'm like, it's really great. Also I could be happier. <laughs> but, but to your point, you're right. We, how fast paced everything is. We do not have the time. I mean, to yes. look at so deeply into the supply chain as to where everything comes from. Part of minimizing that is going local. I think that's part of the local movement is you can more easily discern the sourcing of all this food and where it's coming from. So it's not realistic to say every single product that I consume, I know every single thing about every single source. No one knows that. It's impossible. But it's trying to find the more tangible areas of the things that we consume and trying to pinpoint what are the things that are more ethically sourced, things that are more green or more sustainable, the things that we can connect to. Because with your point with the tomatoes, right? When you invest something into it, you're seeing literally the fruits of your labors, right? We still use that phrase yeah, because it matters. Yeah. I've been trying to, I, I, we all do a lot of intellectual labor over here and I sort of wish that I had some outlet that was a bit more hands-on. I used to play music back in the day and I just mm. sort of fell off of that. But occasionally I would go on like a, a start fixing things, working through hands. Mm. feels really good. I, I feel like transforming things in a tangible kind of way or interacting with it definitely brings more pleasure than just buying it. Although who doesn't love that sweet chemical rush of buying something off of Amazon. Yeah. And just a cup like, oh, then test, yeah, test done. Exactly. It's, it's the pleasure of having accomplished a task. I set out to buy this thing. It has been done. Now compare that to writing a book. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's an impossible comparison. I think that the phrase that popped out in my mind that you just said was fast paced. It's like, go, 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 go. And stopping to experience the world a little more and in community. So this last um, was Thanksgiving weekend last weekend. And so we had three days off and I was like, I'm just going to work through because I'm going to take a long break. I got to just work, 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 work. But then because I was scrolling Instagram, I found that there was a salsa Congress, which is like a salsa festival. It's for three days. They do like all day workshops from 10 a.m. And then their social dance at 10 p.m. until like 6 a.m. And I did that instead. And it was literally the best thing and made new connections and built a community. And then I just, at the end of this three days of nonstop, like I slept four hours a night, probably I was so exhausted Sunday night and I'm sitting there on my couch. I'm like, wait, why don't I ever do this? <laughs> why? Like, cause I'm constantly thinking, Oh, I got to do this thing. I got to do that thing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a hard, hard life. Uh, a lot of, a lot of stuff to do, but for the environment, I guess this might apply for thinking as a communitarian might, that we sort of treat uh, nature or the environment as a means to an end mm. or or as something that's that's fungible. Like one of the ultimate critiques of, of carbon markets that we've heard so many times is this like, you know, one mangrove is not fungible with another. So like if you just destroyed some wetlands and you bought some mangrove preservation or restoration yeah. credits, you're like, you still destroyed the original one. You can't just, you can't just create a Undo new it. one. Yeah. And so like the communitarian critique and like anything that's place-based and like Wendelberry is super famous for this, being attached to a very specific set of hills and, and dales and, and where he, he lives and, and has had generations on that land. There's something that's just not, you just can't swap it out for something else. I don't know what that's like because I grew up moving around. You're closer because you, you're you you're like serious Miami. I'm like serious Miami, but I don't live there. <laughs> yeah, you're a traitor, a traitor to your people. I, I, and I fly, I, okay, listeners, guilty. 
dirty laundry. I fly a lot to Miami, but I'm keeping track of my flights. So now that we have Nori, I can negate my emissions. Communitarians love you. Environmentalists hate you. Uh, <laughs> hard to keep track of. It's hard to please everyone. Airlines love me. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, what do we do with that? So like one of the great parts of this book that I love, I think this is imagery he tributes to Wendell Berry about there's a sort of strip mining process of talented youth in various communities. If you're from uh, like Akron or, or Temecula or wherever you're from, if you're really talented academically, you will leave those places. You will get a scholarship to some school. You aren't coming back. You're going to move on from whatever big city you go to, get some fancy job and you'll come back and you'll be one of the people you'll see your townie friends and say, Hey guys, how's it going? And some people go back. Some people do. The onion had the most savage take on this I've ever seen. It was like big city comedian who makes 30 grand a year, like returns home for Thanksgiving, sees well-adjusted friends mm -hmm. who have time to spend with their family <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. It's just like ruthless. That's good. Well, I, I will say statistically, I think most Americans, I saw this recently, live within 40 miles of their parents on average, oh. which is kind of crazy when you I think of that. so many people are so transient. It's right. Like there's... A lot of us are living or moving to these big creative urban centers. We're leaving behind. That's that other big concern of the brain drain where these communities that have literally been left behind, some of them are farming communities. Others are just small towns that people thought, well, there's nothing happening here for me. I want to go to the, the place where the action's happening. And I think one way forward can be is having more of us who we leave our communities the ones where there may be weren't a lot of opportunities and coming back and giving. So I think of in mythology and lots of great stories, there's the the monomyth or the hero's journey where you have this mm. individual as an individual and maybe in the liberal sense who they are pursuing their self-chosen mission and they feel called to something and they go on to it individually on their own. They take on challenges. They go through these and they come out on the other side with this great gift that they've achieved that they didn't know they needed. But the end of the story, it doesn't go there. It continues. They come back to their community and it's a gift for them and their community. And that's something a lot of us aren't completing that hero's journey. We're lost, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean we have to all move back to our hometowns. Well, why are we lost? Is it, And it might be that we're called to go home. We've done this thing. We've accomplished the journey. The road home is calling us and we feel pulled there. But there's Instagram. And so God knows if you move back home then you're a failure and you're just going the opposite direction. And it's this constant need to, to achieve and achieve and level up, level up. It's just. You could just tell those people, be like, here, read this Joseph Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, well, I wasn't surprised he brought that up, Jeff. <laughs> I, I, it was only a matter of time, anyone who knows me. But I, I would like to say, I think a, a solution for some of these communities that have been left behind is remote work, which mm. not every industry is able to do that, but more and more are allowing, I think, encouraging more remote work, including the housing crisis that a lot of us are facing is being able to move to smaller communities where it is more affordable, especially for millennials. Most millennials can't afford homes. Move to a community where not only can you afford to live there, but you can bring your skill set and knowledge and the talents you've been gifted with to bless whatever those communities are. Maybe it's your own community or maybe it's one that you're being adopted into, but you're saying, hey, this is my place. I see some needs that I can meet for other people, and I'm going to allow people to make demands on me and vice versa, and I'm going to really dig in, put some roots here. But even that, like remote work is still confrontational. I don't know. Like we're split at Nori too <laughs> on the opinion of remote work, and we're all millennials. There's a benefit to it, and there's just a downside too. Like the human interaction, the human connection. Do I want to be working at my desk in my den all day long and feel isolated from my coworkers, not really know what's going on? So yeah, it is a solution, but... And and, and maybe that middle ground is because I, I, where I work, I'll say I work with a much more aged population, mm -hmm. uh, my coworkers, and they're a bit more resistant to remote work. But I think remote work that's, you know, maybe you're within 50 60 miles of your actual office mm. in one of these smaller communities and you're able to come in once, Fairly twice regularly. a week where it's a little bit more bearable because, right, like your workplace is a place and that's part of what gets lost when everyone's remote. You don't have a, a shared sense of geography or that community of psychology where you see each other face to face. 
The arbitrage is so great, though, if you can do it where I've had friends who they'll be working at a company in D.C. or New York and uh, and they'll be living someplace that like living in Phoenix or living in somewhere, one of the Rust Belt cities. And they're like, wow, I just bought a house. And you're like, you bought a house. What? <laughs> um, so if you're able to pull that off, it, it's great. But I, I also done I've done a lot of remote working and I used to think telecommuting is the future every in the future everyone's going to do this and then i was like i still feel very disconnected calling into stuff like that so much better just being in the room even if i'm just like at home versus being in the office it depends on what you're doing though too like mm. some some of the jobs i've worked have been like i don't need to be here we all know i don't need to be here mm. just let me go home but does it have to be all or nothing it's like oh you either live in a place and you work there and you, your whole life is in that community or you do um and or you do remote work, you live somewhere else. But what about in between? So like I'm I'm starting to get the idea of like, well, what if I spent just a good portion of my time I had multiple homes? Miami. <laughs> like what if I just spent a good portion of my time in Miami bonding with my nephew? Oh my god, my the listeners must hate me. Like I literally only talk about Noah, my nephew, on this podcast. And then I come to put that see- on a bingo card. Yes, put that on the next <laughs> bingo card. Happen. My nephew, Noah. <laughs> Love you. Going home to Miami, but then also coming often to Seattle, but then also being on the road so that I can meet with potential clients, meet with business partners, um, but having some type of cycle where you are able to be in one community also into in another because do you really need me here every day? Like, I don't know. I think that there's, a, like everything, a, a point of diminishing returns. <laughs> I think I've talked to you about this a bit too, Jeffrey. Uh, very good. Uh, I had a friend who who wanted to do some travel blogging as a career and, and make this jump into something that he could travel with. And I, I've traveled a lot. I used to work like from my computer and bounce around all over the world. And it was a great experience. But a lot of the time I was like, I can't wait to get back into a routine. I can't wait to mm. like build a long-term connection to places and people and whatever, as opposed to just endless variety and, and stimulation. That's true. And I think, I don't know what it is that has so denigrated the stability of yeah, living close to your parents, being able to have that sort of like grandparents helping you with the kids seeing them often, actually building those relationships now that you're an adult and you can transform them from whatever they were when you were a kid and sort of like, cause you can't, you can't really grow past that as an adult where you don't see your parents. Like it's, you sort of need like repeated exposure to that. And I think people have overvalued travel and they've undervalued the sort of place-based. That being said, one more thing, real quick. I was going to say, I'd like to make a her- heretical view, but please okay, see it. I'll I want, share it after. I want this heresy, too. <laughs> that being said, I also I also like the freedom that uh, liberalism has given me to choose these things. And Alessandra and I were talking about this and discussing the book before you got here, is I like that I have the choice whether to be a part of this community, uh, move back home, so to speak, or to live in the big city and I'm not like bound to the land like a surf where I can't leave and go chase after better opportunities because I have some sort of abstract community benefit of my Mm. staying. Give me your heresy. Yeah, my my heresy. Uh, So I would like to kind of trash on travel or maybe just wanderlust. Dude, dunk on it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... I don't know what noise that was. That was a dunk. That was a dunk (laughs) dunk noise. No, I... There's, especially for, you know, partially it's a generational thing, some of it's an age thing, but there's this romanticization of seeing the world and travel. And travel is a great thing for expanding horizons and being able to do a lot of stuff. Uh-huh. Obviously, there's the carbon footprint concerns with so yep. much travel that so many of us do. That's part of the communitarian focus on going local is minimizing a lot of that footprint as well. Uh-huh. But part of this thing I have against travel is more of against wanderlust where it's like, oh... I need to go find myself. I need to go eat, pray, love somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's just like the reality is that wherever you go, most of your problems are going to go with there you. with you, right? So it's if you're just trying to go wander around, my friends who live in vans will be <clears> upset <throat> with me. But, you know, just living in a van, wandering around the country, trying to solve your problems may not be the best way to go, that you have to face those wherever you're at. And so I think part of the importance or the benefit of local is minimizing those carbon footprint. It's also about not having an outlet to try and escape to your problems that you really have to face them. Now, there are some very real threats in your physical space that do require you to leave. Maybe you do have an abusive relationship or an abusive community, et cetera, et cetera. 
that's a different circumstance. It's funny that you say this and you make like this eat, pray, love reference and like going off and, and, and kind of dumping on this wanderlust. I totally agree. And I say it's funny because when this airs, I will be like meditating in a temple and <laughs> 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 like Chiang Mai, Thailand and just trying to unplug. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. And uh, I know I might sound like I'm contradicting myself, but I've been, I plan this be like right, right at the end of tech stars at the end of uh, October Going through a lot of stuff, lost uh, your family member. So, you know, when Ross was talking about being with your parents and appreciating that, I'm like, yeah, you just don't know when that's going to end. So enjoy it as much as you can. And anyways, I decided to do this trip, stress of Nori, and I'm constantly reminding myself, you know, girl, like, it's not like the trip is going to, like, solve your problems. So I've been meditating every day in the morning and the evening since I decided to take the trip in preparation for it. Because I'm like, yeah, that might allow me to heighten and get a little bit more quiet, no more Slack messages, no more emails, no more texts. And it would just give me a sense of just a space and maybe a little bit of variety so that I could feel refreshed when I come back. But the journey is just going to continue. It's just like a little blip because all of all of the things that you're working through are like, they're just going to come with me. And so I completely agree with you. And it's still like a weird balance of, yeah, can I give myself a moment to just be really, really still and meditate and not have to worry about any other things? Because it's really hard to do that. To I know that if I were to say, okay, well, I'm going to be off the grid in Seattle. No, <laughs> I would pull out my computer. I would do, I would come stop by the Nori office. Like I would just find all those little distractions. So to completely pull away to give yourself some space too is just like mm-hmm. the, the alternative view of that. So I'm agreeing Absolutely. with you, but also highlighting some complications of trying to be local. You don't really get to unplug if that's something that you want to do every once in a, in a blue moon. Well, we should start thinking about how to end this thing. And I think we should do a little more on the book. What I would like to cover, which I, I hope or think would be really beneficial to listeners, would be really trying to connect it into the question around solutions to reversing climate change is, do we focus on, well, I think of, so for example, there was an essay that was actually submitted and published with Eradicus by uh, one of my friends, Charlie Diaz. When the Green New Deal came out, this is sort of his response to it, is we don't need a Green New Deal, we need thousands of them. And largely what he's trying to say is, look, when we have this very top-down approach to solutions, oftentimes they don't work, one, because they lack the motivation that comes from local affinity, but they also lack the local knowledge that small communities have. So when you have something that comes from, say, Washington, D.C., or even something in Seattle that maybe comes from Olympia as a Washington state level, there are norms, there are even like legal nuances that aren't known on these federal levels. And so when you try and bring this top down, here's what everyone has to adopt and endorse, you end up having a lot of negative unintended consequences. And so part of the thrust of this argument, which I think can be a very communitarian argument, is that our approach to reversing climate change needs to be thousands of communities working together as tangible, actual communities who know their norms, their practices, their their nature that surrounds them, and that they can come up with solutions. I think of one of your former podcast guests who, um, I think a little bit more radical solution, but uh, was it the Black Sheep who were in, were they Costa Rica? Yeah, that's right. And how they take very much this community at least in some way could be interpreted as a communitarian approach where they're trying to keep, you know, a very community focused solution to food sourcing, you know, using permaculture, which is fantastic and phenomenal thing I love to think about. And they're really focused on what they can do in this more holistic approach rather than waiting for some federal mandate to make the magic happen or waiting for large scale corporations to make the magic happen. I think all of them can be a solution and this is a praise I want to give that I actually wanted to give to y'all for your podcast is I think with the, the many, many perspectives from people that you have on the podcast, there's tons of people doing a lot of different solutions that as a whole, all these different unique efforts can come together and hopefully address this crisis that touches every aspect of all of our lives. And rather than having one top-down mm-hmm. solution, it's thousands of communities working together because you don't have a community unless you're building something together. And climate change offers a chance for us to unify as communities to combat something. Drop the mic. That was good. That was necessary. 
to get that in there. So if you're listening and you're saying, why is this podcast called Reversing Climate Change? Are they going to get to it? You can shut your pie hole right now. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Jeffrey, what do you think is the best criticism of communitarianism that you know of? I don't think it, like we painted a picture that was a bit rosy, I think, but it isn't a mainstream view and there's mm. plenty of room to challenge basically everything we talked about. Yeah. So I, I'm going to list off a few names. I think communitarianism, the nature of it is such that it doesn't fit easily into any other political camp. And so it has enemies in a lot of directions where, for example, some of the points we brought up where maybe communitarianism is too limiting that what if you're in a community that is so opposed to some aspect of your individual identity that's very threatening. Maybe you identify in a non-binary way with gender or sexual orientation and your community is absolutely against that and to the point of threatening your physical safety, right? That's an issue that communitarians maybe have to struggle with because you can't guarantee that that's part of the challenge with liberalism is trying to offer a, a universal ethos that preserves the individual that pushes back against the particulars of different communities. And so there's plenty of critics for that. I'm sorry. I do not see why the two are in conflict, liberalism versus communitarianism, because liberalism could be a pathway to that. Again, you can break through the expected social contract of what your sexuality is, find your new community. But the problem is, again, like I think we're just too far out that we're free and we're like going wild like when you first get to like drink alcohol. But now it's like, okay, find those communities, be able to break free a little bit and re reconnect and value really intentionally building community and connections. Because if, if we just start off and say, okay, liberalism is not working for us, it doesn't allow us to do this, build communities, then what happens is you're bound and we're full circle. I think communitarians don't like that because it's elective. It's like something that you can do if you want to, but you can get by without it. And the consequences of us not choosing that are bad and people are not choosing it. Some critics I would say of communitarianism, one particular would be... Um, Effective altruism. Peter Singer is an, a big advocate of effective altruism, with, which the centerpiece of that argument is that when it comes to charity and what is the ethical thing to do, that you need to find who is the person that is in greatest need of help. And that's where your charitable um, focus should go to. So it shouldn't go to your family or your local community, even though for most of us, that's natural and reasonable to think, oh, if there's a stranger versus my child and both of them are starving, who do I help? And maybe a community chairman would say, well, you help your child. That's your child. They have a natural obligation to you, vice versa. Whereas maybe an effective altruist would say, well, who's in greater need? Well, if your child ate yesterday or maybe they ate two days ago, but the stranger down the road hasn't eaten for a week, you give that food to that stranger, which a communitarian is going to have qualms with. But it's sort of this question of, in our communities in wealthy Seattle, do we help our neighbors or do we provide some support to the most impoverished corner of the earth? I think those are those are fair criticisms too. I think another criticism that could be made is that you just don't get scale with a lot of these small things. Like with the problems we're facing, we actually need scale and that scale either comes from the market or states and mm -hmm. that's what we need right now. We don't have time to tinker around with little things on, on farms. We need the gears of industry moving right now. So people could make those claims and fight about them, but whatever. I think it's a cool perspective. I think it's worthy of, of people giving it a chance. Read some Wendell Berry, go hang out in Port William. If you want, um, this book was very interesting too. why liberalism failed by Patrick Deneen. I thought, I thought it was good. I think it's a very good introduction to, there's another concept that we didn't even get, in, get into called Republican virtue uh, or communitarian thought. It's like conservatives love to say, it's liberty, not license. Which I don't know <laughs> if you've heard that. It's like, if you can't be free to choose to be some sort of rabble-rousing uh, some, some decadent profligate. Philistine. Yeah. You're supposed to choose good things. If you're going to govern yourself and live in a self-governing society, you got to be a well-ordered person. You can't just be a drunk running around doing whatever you want. So like, what does freedom mean if you can't choose this? And anyways, this is, the book is a very good introduction to those. If it's new to you at all, I hope you enjoyed it. We went long, we went long, but I think, I think we covered some good ground there. Got silly. Jeffrey, if someone wanted to follow your work, if they like you and want to know what's going on in, in, in those mind grapes over there, how might they do so? 
Well, first of all, they can check out Eraticus. Just type in Eraticus into any search engine. It'll pull up on top. Um, nice. Good SEO. I'll put that in the show notes. E-R-R-A-T-I-C-U-S. Correct. Cool. Anything else? No. Nope. Start there. I'm, I'm on Twitter. You can find me, Jeffrey Howard as well, but it all goes back to Eraticus. Nice. Well, I just want to wrap up here with our final show for the year. For the two years. Oh my God. You're right. Because... Yeah. It is a continuous season. Is that what we're going to do? I think this is the end of the first season, and then we're going to open a new one. A two-year-long season. Speaking of continuous content. It's, it's more work <laughs> than it looks like, folks. Yeah, and you can please send Ross a lovely email. Tell him how much you appreciate the podcast. You should. You should. Ross puts a lot, a lot of time and is like the driver behind this podcast. So happy New Year, Ross. Thank you so much for having us on this podcast and doing this all the time. And also, I just wanted to say thank you to our listeners. We so appreciate hearing from you on a lot of you send emails to us. They're lovely to read. We hope you have a beautiful holiday, a blessed new year. And yeah, don't forget to keep tuning in and watch out for season two. Yeah, we have some exciting things planned for it. Thanks for the kind words. Yeah, you can reach us at podcast at nori.com or hello at nori.com. If you want to rate and review us in iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, please do so. Thanks for listening. And thanks for being here, Jeffrey. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah. You had a good time? I did. Okay. Okay. Well, we'll see you whenever it is that we return. In 2020. 2020 sometime. Okay. Bye.